Hello, and welcome to Let's Get It Straight. Today, we're going to discuss why CDC guidelines change using the current outbreak of COVID-19. This is Catherine West, Infection Control Consultant, and I'll have the pleasure of presenting this session today. So why do CDC guidelines change? And this question is asked time and time again, but rarely do people get the answer. And the answer is based on a well-established step-by-step process, which I'm going to walk you through today. First, let's talk about the definition of what constitutes an outbreak. An outbreak is any number of cases occurring over the normally occurring case number for that illness. So let's take COVID-19. Totally new disease, no previous cases in the United States. So one case established an outbreak. So why do we need to investigate if it's, for example, one case above the norm? The reasons include, number one, we want to identify and hopefully eliminate the source, the cause of the outbreak. We want to evaluate appropriate protective measures. We want to describe this new disease and learn more and more about it by conducting studies. And we want to address public concerns. The factors we want to consider, the severity of the illness, transmissibility of the illness, and look at continuing cases and exposures. So what is the process? This slide depicts the process listed in eight steps. Sometimes you will see it broken down a little more into separating some of them and they become 10 steps. <laughs> but we're going to cover each one of the key elements in this session. So first, does an outbreak exist? Next, we want to verify the diagnosis, define and identify cases, collect data, implement infection control measures in the case of COVID-19, evaluate hypothesis and conduct studies, take the results of those studies and evaluate and determine if there's a need to revise the control measures. And lastly, to communicate the findings. So let's go through each step. So number one, we've already established there's an outbreak of COVID-19. We have more than one case. Verify the diagnosis, reviewing medical records of individuals and laboratory data. And we want to conduct clinical testing. 
Well, we want to establish a case definition for any outbreak. Person, what type of illness were they believed to have? Place, location of the possible exposure to this illness. Time, based on the incubation period. So let's now uh, use COVID-19 in this process. Using COVID-19, let's start with person, an individual who reported signs and symptoms of fever, shortness of breath, and fatigue. Place, this individual was in Washington state, but had just recently returned from Wuhan, China. Time, the end of December. So as other cases began to be reported, it was important to create a line listing, a record to clearly show what was happening. Looking at symptoms, the type and duration, date of onset, demographic information, and exposure information. And then begin conducting studies. Developing a hypothesis, a supposition, a proposed explanation made on the basis of limited evidence as a starting point for further investigation. As studies began, we learned that COVID-19 was present in the United States before this individual uh, was identified in Washington state. Cases were in the Northeast um, before that date. And this was discovered by doing studies on stored blood samples. Implementing initial control measures. Well, we're sure going to look at the signs and symptoms to give us a clue, a direction to follow on how transmission occurred. This led to personal protective equipment recommendations. These recommendations were guided by epidemiological study results combined with environmental studies. So the mode of transmission in January of 2020 from the World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control stated clearly Transmission was respiratory droplet and required droplet precautions and contact precautions. Well, then we want to look at the hierarchy of controls, knowing, having an idea of mode of transmission. What are the protective measures we are going to implement? So, we can't at this point eliminate this disease. So we're going to go next on the hierarchy of safety controls and look at engineering controls. How do we control respiratory droplets? Second, administrative controls, education and training. Uh, your exposure control plan for COVID-19. And then, 
appropriate personal protective equipment. In January of 2020, the World Health Organization first published prevention measures for medical care providers. Number one, place a, sur a surgical mask on the patient. Source control always is number one when dealing with droplet transmission. Also stated, we could use an oxygen mask on the patient. So control at the source, that's putting a mask on the patient. Apply standard precautions for all patients, good hand hygiene. That's been a challenge for centuries. And then implement droplet and contact precautions. Here's a point that needs real clarification. When appropriate, airborne precautions should be instituted when doing aerosol-generated procedures. So airborne precautions, the use of respirators were was not across the board. It was for doing aerosol-generating procedures. And then let's closely look at the wording. When taking samples for testing from the lower or upper respiratory tract, you would need an N95. EMS does not do that. Taking serum specimens, EMS does not do that. Conducting open suctioning, EMS does not do that procedure either. You maintain a closed filtered system. Intubation, absolutely performed by EMS. Bronchoscopy, no. CPR, yes. So the use of N95 established back in January of 2020 was to be for aerosol generating procedures only. Then we began hearing the word airborne used with regard to transmission of COVID-19. And I think it's important that we take a look at the study data. You know, we hear things, but we are not often um, made privy to, at the same time they're talking about it, the study data. So here it is. Circumstances under which airborne transmission of SARS-CoV-2 appears, that's a key word, appears to have occurred include. Obviously, enclosed spaces in which an infected person is in close proximity to susceptible individuals. Number two, prolonged exposure to respiratory particles. I think we all are familiar with the church choir group that practiced for two and a half hours. This also happened up in Washington state. Many members of the choir uh, developed COVID-19 and there were several deaths. But the key one is the third bullet, inadequate ventilation or air handling. 
that allowed a buildup of suspended particles and droplets. So that's where engineering controls became important. In July of 2020, specific guidelines for EMS were published. Many departments adopted hospital guidelines, which are very, very different than the world of practice in EMS. So let's take a look at that. The guidelines said begin with source control, put a mask on the patient, and that would be a surgical mask. Dispatch was given a new responsibility to advise patients and families to be masked before EMS arrived to provide care. To use your rear exhaust fan and to put it on the high setting. Remember that exhaust fan exchanges out the air in the back of your vehicle a minimum of every two minutes to put your heating or air conditioning on the non-recirculating cycle. And the other plus is that for most predominant uh, EMS systems, you have a short transport time. Well, what about contact transmission? In the beginning, um, there were concerns about life of this virus outside the human body on surfaces and recommendations for excessive cleaning were put into place. People were wiping down um, uh, packages and uh, plastics and all sorts of items uh, being delivered. But then studies were conducted. We also have to keep in mind that we have known that COVID-19 is an enveloped virus. Well, what does that mean? That means that the outer envelope of the virus, when it lands on a surface, opens up when in contact uh, with cleaning agents, normal cleaning agents, and is very susceptible to low-grade disinfectant agents. And that transmission is low via surface items. So I ask that you read the study that I have uh, noted for you uh, as a footnote on this slide. Again, an example of we hear one thing really big, the studies are done, but none of that is really well presented to the public or for, to healthcare for that matter. So bottom line, we need nothing special to kill COVID-19. Any EPA approved disinfectant is efficient and safe to use. So what about effectiveness of cleaning and disinfection? CDC published in that scientific brief, which was uh, April 5th of 2021, that soap and water daily cleaning reduces levels of virus on surfaces. That high touch surfaces, such as 
what areas the patient was in contact with or uh, items used to care for the patient can be cleaned with soap and water. Also stated in this document, some types of disinfection such as fogging, misting, um, UV lighting uh, are neither safe nor effective for inactivating the virus unless they are properly used. Reading the, closely the manufacturer's recommendations and the safety data sheet on the product. Two more definitions that come into play here, quarantine and isolation. Quarantine is the time following an exposure to the virus or close contact with someone known to have COVID-19. Isolation is used to separate people infected with COVID-19 from those who are not infected. So next comes work restriction. That would be under administrative controls. And perhaps this is the most ever-changing. So at this time, January 1st of 2022, this is the latest with regard to work restriction for healthcare personnel. Definition of high risk exposure is a healthcare person who has had prolonged close contact with COVID-19 patients who were not wearing a face mask and the healthcare person's nose and mouth were exposed. In other words, they were not wearing face protection either. So an update on masks. The definition of higher risk exposure was updated to include use of a face mask instead of a respirator by healthcare personnel if the infected patient is not also wearing a face mask or a cloth mask. So on our work restriction update that came out on December 23rd of 2021, now states that healthcare workers who have COVID-19 but have no signs or symptoms can return to work after five days with a negative test and that isolation time can be cut even more if there are staffing shortages. Healthcare workers who have received all recommended vaccine doses, including their booster, do not need to quarantine at home, even following a high risk exposure. This chart published by the CDC on December the 21st lays out very clearly the new guidelines for work restriction for um, individuals uh, with SARS coronavirus 2 or COVID-19 um, based on their vaccination or non-vaccination status. <clears throat> 
I think this would be a great handout for members of the department um, and good in your education and training programs as well. So what brought about this change? The change is motivated by science studies that tell us that COVID-19 transmission occurs early in the course of the illness. One to two days prior to the onset of symptoms and two to three days thereafter. So this is where the five days comes in. Communicating the findings and evaluate the need to modify protective measures. So what's been going on here? So conducting studies also includes documentation of the effectiveness of control measures. And studies have been conducted. Studies have been ongoing throughout the process. I think one key one for EMS is comes out of the University of Washington School of Medicine. They looked at risk for EMS contracting on the job COVID-19. Their study showed um, that they followed 1,592 pro uh, providers that cared for 946 COVID-19 patients. One provider tested positive that was linked to an aerosol-generating procedure. One. So what they found was the risk for on-the-job infection is low, even when performing aerosol-generating procedures. Now, the protocols for uh, PPE uh, in Washington included a surgical mask, N95s for aerosol-generated procedures only, eye protection, gowns, and gloves. So I encourage you all to read this study as well. A survey that was published back in May of 2020, now remember surveys are self-reporting, um, and this one said that frontline healthcare workers, including nurses and physicians, reported a COVID-19 infection rate of 29%. The last block in the process is communication of the studies to support the changes needed to be presented to the public. Now, we are presented with the changes. Those come out pretty clearly now. And they say that these are supported by studies. I don't know about you, but I think it would be much more beneficial if when they're presenting the changes, they show the study data, or at least give us a list of references that we can go to. I think this would bring about a better understanding and be more of a counter to misinformation. I'd be interested to hear what you think of that. 
This brings to conclusion this session of Let's Get It Straight. I hope that the information will be helpful in understanding not only um, our process ongoing with COVID-19, but with any new um, illness or pandemic that may occur in the future. Have a good new year. Work safe. Take care. See you for the next installment of Let's Get It Straight.